0: My name is Joshua, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be preaching on that passage that was just read. So, if you have a Bible, you can turn there to Isaiah 49. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, there some, um, there's some. A there's a round table in the back there with some Bibles, and there's some by the exits. Feel free to get up and grab one of those if you'd like to follow along. We've uh, we've been in this sermon series in the prophet Isaiah, and we've been looking at the heart of God. What is God like? How has he revealed himself? And this week we're looking at God's faithfulness. And that's good news for us because we need a faithful Savior. So let's pray as we look at God's word. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we need you to speak to us. We need to hear your words today. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear it. Help us to have faith to believe your word. Show us how we might come to trust you more. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth here this morning and the meditations of all of our hearts together will be pleasing to you, our Redeemer. And in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Now, when I was a young boy around eight years old, uh, my dog, Jeffro, got hit by a car and died. Um, But you don't have to feel sorry for me because um, I lived in the country and uh, dogs were outdoor animals, so we didn't really get attached to them that much. Because where I'm from, every dog eventually gets hit by a car and dies. Um, and that's what happened to mine. So you know that movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven? I thought, like, yeah, they go to heaven after they get hit by a car and die. Because that's what happens to every dog. Um, but then um, this, this young puppy sort of wandered up into my yard. And, um, and I wanted to take this dog in to be my new pet. Um, but I immediately realized that there was something different about this dog. This was a stray dog, and it had clearly been abused. You could see its scars. And um, this dog was, was scared and suspicious. In fact, I would come close to this dog with food to try to feed it, and it would run away from me. It would only eat if I would put the food down and, and go hide and watch it. It was suspicious, and it was scared, because it had been wounded. It had been abandoned. It had been beaten. And so um, it was, that dog never really worked as a pet. Um, And it eventually moved on. Now, a few years after that, I learned to ride horses. And believe it or not, a stray horse showed up in my yard. Um, I'm not making that up. And um, it... It wasn't really a stray horse. It was an escaped horse. It was a horse that was in a small fence, and some boys would come and throw rocks at it, and, um, and so it eventually broke out of its pen and uh, wandered into my, to my yard, and we, we actually acquired that horse. We went to its owner, and we said, we will take that horse from you, and, um, but that horse being um, a beaten horse, a wounded horse, a stray horse, it was, it was defiant, Um, It was a quarter horse. It was a bay quarter horse, but it looked like a wild Mustang. It had this wild look in its eyes, and every time you rode it, it bucked. And at times, it would even um, buck someone off and just run around the pasture until the saddle flipped underneath it, and it would just run for like an hour and a half um, by itself because it was wounded, and it was suspicious, and it became angry you know, I think for me, in some ways, I identified with those animals. Maybe you do too. I identified with, um, and, in some ways, was attracted to the broken, the abandoned, the wounded, the drifters. And I think it was in part because I saw something of myself in them. Maybe you identify with the stray dog um, or the stray horse, which you didn't know until today existed. Um, You know, I've never forgotten my own children yet. Um, They're young. But I do know what it feels like to be forgotten. I know what it's like to be the last kid picked up at school, waiting, wondering, did they forget me? Will they remember? Will someone show up? I know what it's like to be stood up by a friend when you said no to every other opportunity you had, only to have your friends stand you up the last minute and you spend the weekend alone. I know what that feels like. And maybe you do too. Um, maybe you've been abandoned. Maybe you've been forgotten. Maybe you've been disowned by your family. And maybe you haven't had the big A, abandonment, but you know what it's like to be stood up. You know what it's like to be left behind You know what it's like to be the one that always pursues but never seems to have anyone pursuing you. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know what it's like to have a friend abandon you and walk away out of your life. Maybe you know what it's like to have um, your confidence betrayed or someone take credit for your work. Whatever it is, the wounds that we have often leave us fiercely committed to self protection. Fiercely committed to self protection. Distrustful, suspicious, skeptical. When we are wounded, it's hard to trust someone else. Do you resonate with that at all? Maybe you do. And maybe you're like that stray pup that wandered into my yard, desperately wanting food and affection and shelter. But so shell shocked by the past and fearful of letting anyone get close enough to you. Well, when we're wounded and abandoned, we tend to guard our trust. And at times we even make vows of self protection. We say, I'll never trust anyone again. That person left me. I will never trust anyone again. Or maybe we say, you know what? That person hurt me. I'll never let anyone get close. Maybe you even, in your vow to protect yourself, cursed yourself. I was so stupid. How could I be so vulnerable and naive and gullible? And then you meet God. And God says, trust me. Trust me. Trust is the currency of relationships. And God says, trust me with everything. Trust me with your life and trust me with your death. And I will not abandon or forget you. But how do, how do we, suspicious, wounded people, fiercely committed to our own self-protection, how do we trust a God that we can't see? How do we trust him? Well, this passage tells us that, that God is a sovereign God and he is faithful. And the answer for us is to look at his faithfulness. To look at his trustworthiness, to look at his character, and it will be good news for us. And the first thing we see is that God's faithfulness actually restores confidence in the forgotten. God's faithfulness restores confidence in the forgotten. In this passage, starting in in verse 13, it says Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion, his people, said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. This part of Isaiah has the exile in view. A time where the people of God were living not in Zion, not in Jerusalem, not in Israel, not in Judah, but living away from the promised land, on exile, a foreign land, away from home. And it's not hard to guess what they were feeling because they said it. We feel forgotten. We feel forsaken. Maybe the Lord has forgotten us. Maybe we are out of sight and out of mind. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel forgotten by the Lord? Well, every honest Christian that I've ever met has Doubts. We all doubt different things at different times um, and in different ways. And sometimes we think that doubt is the opposite of faith. But doubt is not always the same thing as disbelief. There are times when, when we, we doubt even as we believe. We may doubt, um, there's a way to doubt the existence of God or the content of Christianity and if that's the case, if that's what you're doubting today, then there's often books that you can read. You can come to a community group and talk with other people about it. There's lots of people here that would love to, to have that discussion with you um, if, if that's what you're struggling with today. But in my experience, often our doubts are not just the intellectual doubts. We don't just doubt the existence of God or the content of Christianity, we doubt the experience of God. We doubt the character of God. And sometimes those are even underneath our intellectual doubts. At the end of the day, we wonder, is God really good? Can I trust him? Will he abandon me? Will he forget me? And I've talked to people who have been on the fence, and maybe that's you today, who haven't believed in Jesus yet. And the thing that's holding them back They say, yeah, I've had this question answered and this question answered and this question answered. I remember someone telling me this years ago. And he said, the thing I have trouble with is I don't know if I can give up control. I don't know if I can give my life to God. He could ask anything of me. And if that's you today, then then you've actually got it right. That is what God demands of us. That is what christian faith is about it's about giving our whole lives to god that he can't ask anything of us and so underneath our doubts or even that question can i trust him is he good and if that's you today then you're not alone because that's what the israelites were asking can we trust him or will he forget us has he forsaken us And the Israelites actually stand in a long line of doubters. Um, If you go all the way back to the father of the faith, a man named Abram, um, he's the man that we long think of as as the father of their their tradition, the father of their faith. And um, God makes a promise to Abram. And he says, I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to fill the earth with your descendants. And Abraham believed him. And it says in Genesis 15 that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And then in the next line, Abram says, wait, what sign will you show me that you're actually going to do this? First of all, I may think, like, you're talking to God. If God were talking to me, that would be, like, the, the only sign I would need, right? You would think that. But Abram says, okay, I believe you, but what sign will you give me? will you give me a security deposit so that I can take it to the bank so that I know that you're going to actually do what you say? He's asking the same thing the Israelites are asking. Can I trust you? I trust you. Can I trust you? And God actually did give him a sign. God gave him this thing called a covenant ceremony. In other words, he's saying, like, here's the contract. Where do I, you know, let me put my name on it. And that will be, The sign that I give you. And I find myself in the same place, often asking God, what what sign will you give me? Can I really trust you? In those moments, how do you imagine God responding? In those moments of doubt, when you think, can I trust you? Do you imagine him saying, hey, I need committed followers. I don't want any wavering. How dare you call me a liar? How dare you call me a liar? Trust me. I'm giving you my word, and that's all you need. Well, how does God respond here in Isaiah 49 to the, Isra- to the exiles? What does he say to them who say, Has God, forgotten? Has God forgotten us? Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God condescends to the doubting. He condescends to the, to the exiles who feel forgotten by God. And he says, how could I forget you? He says, look at my heart. I love you. I can't forget what I love. Even if a mother or a father forsakes you, I will not forsake you. I love you so much that I can never leave you. I can never forget you. Is that what you hear God saying to you in your own doubts? Or do you hear Him saying, "Hey, get it together." You know, we've been through this before. Do we really have to go there again? No, to the exiles, to the forgotten, he says, I love you. I have compassion upon you. Look at my love. Look at my heart. I cannot forget you. You have my heart, and my heart is the promise. My love for you is the promise that you will not be forgotten. You don't forget what you love. But he even takes it a step further, Um, and I'm really glad about this one. He says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. See, here's here's the good news that I get to break to you today. God has tattoos. (laughs) Um, In fact, in the ancient world, tattoos were more um, common than they are today. Archaeologists have, have discovered that mummies had tattoos. Statues had tattoos. Figurines had tattoos. And the art of the ancient world... A lot of people had tattoos, and what did, they, what did they tattoo on their bodies? It was often a symbol of their god or goddess. And the Jewish people, too, the Hebrews had tattoos. In fact, if you flip back about five chapters to chapter 44, God actually says, and, and this is your next tattoo idea. You can take it. I'll give it to you. Just make sure you take the Hebrew Bible with you, because you, you don't want to get, like broken stick or something in Hebrew tattooed on you on accident. Um, in chapter 44, he says that people will tattoo on their palms, La Yahweh, belonging to Yahweh, belonging to the Lord. I am the Lord's. And if you're wondering, okay, is it really talking about tattoos? The answer is yes, um, because what they would do is they would take a woodcut and they would often um, use like the, a symbol of Jerusalem, of Zion. They would take the, the city walls or maybe even the temple itself and they would make a woodcut on a block and they would cover it with charcoal or indigo and they would stamp it on their palm and they would take two needles tied together and they would puncture the skin and they would trace that outline and then they would wash it with wine and they would have a picture On their hand, or a symbol or a word on their hand. It was a tattoo. If you've never gotten a tattoo, that's basically what they do even today. Um, And so they would tattoo on their hands their own devotion. And it was a sign of remembrance, it was a way to remember who they were and who they belonged to. And in this passage, God says, No, I'm going to actually turn it. I'm not going to ask you to tattoo a symbol. Of me on your hand, I'm gonna tattoo my own palms with you. I'm gonna engrave you on my palms. And what he's saying is that I'm gonna remember you so much. It's not just my heart, my love for you, it's that I can't forget you. To forget you, I would have to forget myself because it's carved into my hand. Now, of course, God is speaking metaphorically, but you can still take it with you that God has metaphorical tattoos. Um, But God's saying, I will never forget you. You were tattooed on my palm. You were always before me. You're never out of sight and out of mind. You can't be out of sight and out of mind, because if I forgot you, I'd have to forget myself. That's how much I've devoted myself to you. See, God condescends to the doubting. He condescends to to the forgotten, to the stray dogs, the suspicious and the skeptical, the ones who find it hard to trust. And he says, I have compassion. I will not forget you. And so um, we have to look at his heart in those moments of doubt. When we feel forgotten, when we find faith, it's hard to find we have to look not at our circumstances. You know, they were in exile. Abraham did not see, did not see the fruit, the, the, the multiplicity of people, the multitudes that of his offspring that would come from him. If he looked around, it was easy to feel forgotten. If the exiles looked around, it was easy to feel forgotten. But we have to look at the heart of God and see his compassion. And when we see the links that he has taken to be faithful, then that restores our confidence. That restores confidence in the forgotten. But maybe you've heard this and you're, you're saying, you know what, I don't really identify with that. You know, I, I had a great family. I was never abandoned. Yeah, maybe I've been stood up a time or two, but I've known love. Um, I don't have any trust issues at all which, all right, I, I doubt that, but I'll give it to you today. Um, maybe you say, I don't doubt that God is good. That's not my, my issue. What I doubt is myself. I doubt that I'm actually saved. I doubt that, that God can actually love me. You know, that, that's the other side of doubt. As a pastor, I often hear people say, you know, their, their doubt falls into two, two categories usually. Um, it's, I don't, I don't know if I can trust God, and it's, I don't know if God can really love me. And there's good news, even in this passage, for us who think, how can God love me? How can God really love me? How can I be saved? I can't even make it through 40 days of Lent without coffee, I can't even make it through 40 days of a Lent guide, of praying every single day. Maybe you're thinking, I'm still fighting the same sins I was fighting 10 years ago. How could God love me? How could I be among the redeemed? I'm still trying to put on these virtues that have been so elusive my entire life. How could God love me? And this passage is good news for us as well because it says that God's faithfulness is not just for the forgotten. His faithfulness is also for the forgetful. His faithfulness restores confidence in the forgetful. He says, um, he goes on to say in the passage, lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They all come to you. He's talking to the exiles And he's talking about the nations. He says, they all gather, they all come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. What is God saying in these verses? He's saying, I'm not just gonna restore you. I'm not gonna just restore Israel or Judah or Jerusalem. I'm gonna restore the nations. I'm bringing a new earth. And there's all this language of ex- you'll, you'll have to expand your borders. He's saying, my, my vision is not just for a renewed Israel. My vision is for a renewed earth. And the nations will come into your borders and we'll have to extend the borders. We'll have to extend it over the face of the earth to fit all the people in that I'm going to redeem. He's saying, I, I'm going to be faithful to Abram because I gave him my word and I gave him my sign and I will bless every family of the earth, every nation of the earth through him. And so that's my plan. And the nations will gather and the nations will come in and we will extend the borders to, to, to bring them all in. Do you hear the echoes of Eden? Multiply and fill the earth, God told Adam and Eve. And of course they rebelled and God said, okay, I will multiply and fill the earth. I will extend the Garden of Eden to cover the face of the earth. I will extend Israel to allow for all the nations to come in, for all the redeemed. He says, You may not be at work and you may not see me at work, but I am at work. I am at work bringing my kingdom. And he's saying, Don't just look, don't just look at your context or your circumstances, look at my character. Look at what I'm going to do. I will fulfill my promises. In verse 21, they're asking, how did this happen? How did this happen? And all through the the prophecy of Isaiah, there's this refrain that God will do it. Yahweh will do it. The zeal of Yahweh will accomplish his promises. He's saying, my promises are not contingent upon you being faithful My promises are contingent upon me being faithful and I will do all that I have promised. See, if we look at ourselves and our faith, of course we'll doubt that we're saved. Of course. Because if if we're honest, our faith is feeble. It will never be sufficient. We will never trust and depend on him the way we're meant to because we are the forgetful. We aren't just the abandoned, we are the, the abandoners. We are the ones who betray, we're the ones that stand others up, we're the ones that don't keep our promises, right? For honest with ourselves, we know that we're not trustworthy, that we're not completely faithful to others or to God. You know, every wedding I've done, I use the, the traditional vows, um, from the Book of Common Prayer, 1979 edition, if you're wondering. Um, these are the ones you know, for better or worse, for richer or for poorer. And, um, and at the end of these vows, we say, or, or I have them say, you know, th- that they're making this vow not just to each other, not just to everyone here, but before Almighty God. And so they say, This is my most solemn vow. And those of us who were married, you've, we've, we've taken that vow or some, some form of that. But how many of us have actually lived up to that vow the way we wanted to on that wedding day? You know, the vow doesn't say, I will not divorce you if we get poor or if you get sick or um, in, in the worst of times. It doesn't say, I will not divorce you in those times. That, that would be kind of the minimum requirement to take the vow. No, it, what does it say? It says, I will love and cherish you when, you're, when we're poor, when we're sick in the worst of times. How many of us have fulfilled that vow the way we wanted to? How many of us have actually promised and delivered our love and cherishing when we're at our worst, when our partner is at their worst? That's our most solemn vow and we don't, we don't keep it the way we want to. You know, um, maybe you've seen the show Mad Men. Uh, the, the protagonist of the show is this anti-hero named Don Draper. He's successful, wealthy, handsome. He's also a womanizer. And he's a cheater. And in the most climactic moment of the finale of the show, so yes, I'm ruining it for you, um, the most climactic moment, he breaks down, and he's on the phone with a colleague, the only woman that he's had a, a, tr- a real relationship with, and he says this. He says, "I broke all my vows. I broke all my vows. I scandalized my child. I took another man's name and made nothing of it." You know, that's the essence of repentance. I am unfaithful. I can't keep this covenant. I can't, I can't keep this vow to God. I am I'm an abandoner. I am forgetful. And yet, God takes unfaithful, adulterous, forgetful people like Don Draper, like us, and he takes us to the altar. And he says, you know what? I'm going to make a vow with you. I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. I'm going to wed you. You will be my bride. And we're saying, how could this be? Why would, why would he take a vow? How could he take a vow to us knowing, knowing that we would break it, knowing that we would be unfaithful spouse to him, knowing that we would forget him? And it's, it's because he knows you can't make it through Lent, he knows you can't remember him. He knows that even when you do, you'll be tempted to trust in that to be the thing that saves you. And you'll look at your own heart and you'll say, Well, I've been pretty faithful. I gave up coffee and a lot more for 40 days. Um, but, but he knows that. He knows that we won't f- remember him, we won't fulfill our vows. So, how, how could he marry us? How could he take us as his bride? Well, the answer is in this passage to the exiles, but it also goes all the way back to Abram. You know, what was this sign to Abram? It was this covenant ceremony where they, they took animals and they, they cut them in two. And the way to sign the covenant, thankfully we don't have this custom anymore. Um, we use a signature. Um, but but the way to sign it back then was to walk through the animals, to say, if if I break this covenant, may I be torn into you. May my own life be put at risk. And and if you have read the story of Genesis 15, what you know is that when the time came for Abram to sign, God actually made him fall asleep. And God himself walked through the animals. In other words, he's saying, Abram, here's my sign to you that this will come about. It does not depend on you. It's not about your faith. It's about my faithfulness to the covenant. That's what he says at the altar. The only way this marriage is going to work is, is if you realize that I'm the one that fulfills both sides of the covenant. I take the vows for me and I take the vows for you. Because yes, you are the forgetful. And you know, it's, what he's saying is that it's not the size or the strength or the steadiness of our faith that saves us the object of our faith. You know, if you, if you have a lot of faith in something that's weak and unreliable, it could risk your life. But if you have a little bit of faith in something strong, it could save your life. I used to um, take students from DePaul University up to Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin every winter for a retreat. And I know you Californians aren't going to believe this, but Elkhart Lake in the middle of the winter of Wisconsin is completely frozen. And in fact, there would be uh, trucks driving across the lake and people digging holes in the ice to go ice fishing um, during the winter. And so we would walk across this lake, um, which which was ice and then a a layer of snow. So it never really felt that stable because you could feel the snow. And, um, and then there was even a plowed out area where we would play hockey. And you could see the cracks in the ice while you're playing hockey. And every once in a while, you would hear a crack. And it was terrifying. And everybody would, like, leap, in, you know, to the ground. And even this, like, the guy who owned the place where we stayed, he was, like, in his 50s. He'd lived there his whole life. And in this thick Wisconsin accent would say, you know, it gets me every time. I hear that crack think I'm going to go through the ice. But you know, the ice was strong. And um, if we'd had a lot of faith and we're walking on thin ice, we would really be at risk. But even our feeble faith, even our suspicious faith on Elkhart Lake, that lake wasn't going anywhere. That ice was not going to crack. Trucks and tractors are driving across it. I'm not going to go through the ice. And it's the same with God. When we put our faith in him, it's not the size of our faith that matters. It's the object of our faith. Even a mustard seed of faith in God can move mountains. It can change lives. It can change communities. That's what the, that's what, Abraham, that's what Abraham learned it's what the exiles learned. And then all the way in the New Testament, you come to this chapter that's called the, the Hall of Faith, we often call it, in Hebrews 11. And, um, and you see how this works. The way it works is that God takes our mustard seed of faith and he, he unites it to Jesus. He unites it to Christ. And then our faith is made great. And in Hebrews 11, you hear these stories of Abram and Sarai and Isaac and Jacob, and it says that God was not ashamed of them. And it says the world was not worthy of them because of their faith. Yeah, they may have, they may have waited their whole lives to see God's promise, and maybe they didn't even see it before they died. But they believed that God was faithful. And when we read that story, we think, but did they? Did Abram really believe did Sarai really believe? Or Jacob, who stole his brother's blessing, did they really believe? Did they really have this strong faith? No, it, it wasn't their faith. It was the object of their faith. They believed God, maybe even with just a mustard seed size of faith, and he credited it to them as righteousness. And to the forgotten and to the forgetful Jesus came into this world, and he said, I am going to fulfill the covenant. I will keep the covenant. And Jesus, crucified on the cross for our behalf, he fulfilled our side of the covenant. He fulfilled both sides. And because of that, our faith in him is credited to us as righteousness, even when it's feeble. So if we look at ourselves, if we look at our context, we we will be prone to doubt. But if we look at the heart of God, if we look at what Jesus did, if we look at his hands that are tattooed, punctured by nails, we will know that he will not forget us. He will not forget us any more than he will forget the nails that went through his hands. We are engraven on his hands. Our names are engraven on his heart. As long as the Lord lives, he will not forget us. And that is good news. He will fulfill his promises to us. So for stray dogs and stray horses, put your faith in him. Look to him, and someday your faith will be made sight. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we come to you as those of little faith, as those who wonder if, if you could really be for us. Lord, we ask that you give us, give us faith, unite our feeble faith to the work of Christ. And Lord, help us to see your strong hand. Help us to see your trustworthiness that you will do all that you have promised. Help us to look at you and not ourselves. In the name of Jesus, amen.